Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I appreciate that it takes you all a minute to get settled up here and arrange yourselves, because it takes me a minute to get settled up here and arrange myself. I'm getting better at it, slowly. This morning, we continue our exploration of Sakito Kisen's Song of the Grassroof Hermitage. It may continue through the end of the year. It depends some on things we can see and some on things that we can't see. All things are this way. From time to time, I like to downplay the importance of understanding, say, a Dharma talk. If a talk goes over your head, as opposed to into your head, I suppose, that's okay. Just continue practicing. If you find a talk dizzying, that's all right. Just Put your feet back on the ground and take some time to settle into where you are. Sometimes I like to cite this line from Dogen's Bendoa, or On the Endeavor of the Way, that one cannot enter the realm of all Buddhas and ancestors by way of the intellect alone. So don't concern yourself too much with this thing. It's not the most important thing, you might say. And Coburn, too, says of so many means of mental stimulation, magazines, radio, and television programs, and we might add podcasts. Everyone seems to have a favorite podcast these days. And that love-hate relationship we have with social media, too. That they just keep your mind busy. And that's fine if you want a busy mind. The implication seems to be that we don't want a busy mind. We want a calm mind or a quiet mind or a peaceful mind. Sakito Kisen, in the poem we recited during service today, says that the mountain monk or the mountain dweller doesn't have to be a monk, doesn't understand at all. And I think this is a really important image, right? We hold up the person who lives up on the mountain as someone we might aspire to be like. Maybe not completely. You couldn't live up on the mountain. You don't find that attractive. But maybe the person who lives up on the mountain has certain qualities that you would like to have in your life. Understanding, then, is not something to be admired or aspired to on this image, but not understanding is. The mountain dweller doesn't understand at all. And Dogen, in his instructions for Zazen, says, when you sit down, don't think lofty thoughts, but think not thinking. And how do you do that? By not thinking. Perfectly clear. Easily understandable. Yet Dogen, often in the same fascicle, and sometimes in the sentence that immediately follows the one in which he downplays the importance of understanding, constantly encourages us to study 
such and such a thing, or to reflect on some teaching or other, or inquire into some exchange between a teacher and a student. Doing any one of those things will involve engagement in intellectual activity. You will need to turn your brain on for a while. And there are books, tens of millions of books, I am sure, on the teachings, often written by teachers who downplay the importance of learning and study. And you might think, what's that all about? Should I read this book or not? It reminded me of a kind of cute philosophical paradox. Suppose I had a chalkboard and I wrote on the chalkboard, this sentence is false. You might be like, what am I supposed to do with this sentence? Is it true? Is it false? Is it true and false? Do I take it at face value? It seems to me the same thing when you come across a chapter in a teacher's book and they say, don't read books on Zen practice. And you think, do I keep reading? Do I put the book down? I paid for it, after all, probably. The third of the four bodhisattva vows sometimes reads, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. But as Koban understands it, it reads, Dharmas are boundless, so there is learning and study. Right there in one of the vows is a place for intellectual activity, learning and study. And I too, though not Dogen and not a teacher, often say that this practice has a place for everything and doesn't ask us to exclude anything. So there should be a place for understanding Dharma talks and reading primary and secondary sources and listening to podcasts from your favorite teachers or your not favorite teachers. For the contrarians among us, during sewing a few weeks ago, Joanna was talking about how she has this teacher that she doesn't like anymore, but she still listens to their podcasts. And I thought that was interesting. So this is what I want to explore together this morning. What is the place or a place of learning and study in our practice life? Rather than downplay it, let's look at it and see why it might be important. So when you meet someone new or someone new meets you, and they learn you have a religious practice or a spiritual practice. Some people don't like the word religious, and that's okay. They might ask, so what do you believe? It's a familiar enough question. And sometimes the question implies that religion and spirituality is solely a matter of belief. It's about what you believe. And so that's why we lead with this question when we meet someone new and it turns out they do something like sit on a cushion with their legs folded into a pretzel and face a wall for hours at a time. But this really isn't the case for any major religion or any minor religion for that matter. Practice taking that religion or spiritual path's teachings and embodying them as you move in and through the world is also important. 
So maybe the question, what do you believe, suggests that belief is that which is primarily of importance. I don't know if this is the case for other religions and spiritual paths. I'm not sure it is for Buddhism. I'm also not sure that I'm not sure. It seems to me that we put emphasis more on practice than on belief. When we get together at our tea table on Sundays, we often talk about how our practice is or how our practice life is. We don't talk about how our beliefs are or how our belief life is. Though we could. You could try it out this Sunday if you wanted. But what we believe as Buddhists or the Buddha curious is important. And at least in part because of what I like to call how we orient ourselves in this world. I'm rather fond of this word orientation. What direction are we collectively moving in? What direction are you individually moving in? And learning and study, it seems to me, help us orient ourselves skillfully, both generally and in particular circumstances. Recently, there was a ceremony in which we all had the opportunity to recite together the Ten Clear Mind precepts. We'll have the opportunity to do this again before too long, I think. (laughs) And I hear that some of us are starting precept journals. So I thought we would start there this morning. The precepts we say are not commandments. They are not here to keep us in line or help us find redemption for our flawed and sinful nature. And just in case it needs to be said, your nature is not flawed, nor is it sinful. But as Roshi often says, the precepts serve as reminders for us. Reminders of who we are, of how we are, and how we would always be if the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance didn't sometimes appear in our lives. Of who we are, how we are, and would always be if the eight worldly winds didn't blow so hard from time to time. Oh, drat, there's pride finding its place in my life again, and there I go saying something that I wish I hadn't said. We would, and we do, cultivate and encourage life, honor the gifts not yet given, remain faithful in our relationships, communicate truth, polish clarity, create wisdom from ignorance, maintain modesty, share our understanding freely, dwell in equanimity and respect the Buddha, unfold the Dharma, and nourish the Sangha. We do all of these things. We do them a lot. We do them well. And sometimes we need to be reminded of this. Especially now, it seems. It's been said from this seat before that when the Dalai Lama first came to the United States, a reporter asked him what stood out to him the most about American culture or life in the United States. And he said, There's a lot of self-hatred here. We're really good at being hard on ourselves, finding the smallest mistake and blowing it up into the end of the world. 
Or maybe I shouldn't say we, I should just say I. I'm really good at this. Maybe you are too. But despite the fact that we seem to do a pretty good job a lot of the time upholding the precepts, there are questions that arise. Coburn would often say, I'm told that practice creates dilemmas for us. So how do I communicate truth to someone who, as best I can tell at a particular time, doesn't seem to be capable of hearing it? How do I remain faithful in a relationship that seems to have come to a metaphorical fork in the road? And myself and this other person can't continue on the same path. We need to separate for a while. How can I cultivate and encourage life when it's so clear to me that doing so in one area is going to result in harm to life in another area? These are precisely the moments where learning and study, where understanding and activating the powers of the mind can be extremely helpful. Because I can see only what I can see. I cannot see what any of you see, and necessarily, it seems to me. We do not occupy the same place in this life, nor can we. And even if we could occupy the same place, we can't do so at the same time. And even if we could do it at the same place in the same time, it's still me that has certain experiences in that place and at that time, and not you. And this me here isn't a fixed me, something stable, autonomous, and unchanging. But it's a label applied for convenience's sake to what appears in this particular spot because of a vast nexus of causes and conditions. As I said at the outset of this talk, me being here right now in this moment depends on some things that we can see and some things that we cannot see. And all things are this way. So learning and study offers opportunities for me to see what I cannot yet see. And this doesn't mean that I will see what you see and see it in the same way that you see it. I might see what you're gesturing towards, though, and in the way that I see it. Without you, though without reading together someone's book on Zen practice and talking about it like we do with Thursday night Dharma study, without listening to someone's Dharma talk and sharing what arises like we do at our tea table on Sunday, without recording a situation in my precept journal and then sharing it with Roshi and Dokusan, without all of us practicing together really, it's more difficult for my perspective to change enough so that I can see something that I didn't see before. When this happens, those questions that show up because of which I suddenly feel stuck and I can't figure out how best to move forward, those questions that are really expressions of confusion, a feeling of tension between this moment and the precept on the other hand, start to feel a little less sticky. A little less sticky. I can start to see an opening. And maybe these two things or three things or five things don't feel so much intention anymore. I can start to wiggle a bit. But why does that happen? 
Near the end of the poem, Sakito Kisan writes, thousands of words, myriad interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. You could focus on the word only here. Then the lines seem to downplay the importance of words and scriptures and our interpretations of them. But I suggest focusing on the whole of the last part, that words and scriptures and interpretations of them help free us from obstructions. And that's a really wonderful thing. They do this in at least the following way. Perhaps you've heard Roshi say that in Zen practice, we don't have so much to learn, but we have a lot to unlearn. These are really the same thing in a way. When we engage in learning and study, whether from Thursday evenings or during a Sunday Dharma talk and at our tea table or in Dokusan, or even in the evening if you sit down to read a book by some author that you're fond of as a way of unwinding from your day, there emerge new possibilities for understanding. Sometimes these new possibilities are entirely new pathways of inquiry. Most of the time, though, the boundaries of what we previously thought possible just become blurry. Or if you prefer, I prefer, fuzzy. What was previously fixed and settled, or felt so, or nearly so, feels now not so. I'm really not sure of what to say about such and such an experience or a situation. I really don't know the outcome that feels so certain if that's the only one possible. I'm at a loss when it comes to seeing what opportunities or possibilities are in front of me. These are all wonderful things to say, though they might feel uncomfortable too at times. The process of simultaneously learning and unlearning, learning by unlearning and unlearning by learning, is another way of expressing the, emer the emergence, or re-emergence, if you prefer, of beginner's mind. A term that was popularized by Shinryu Suzuki Roshi's well-known saying, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are few. I wasn't sure how many of you were familiar with the Dharma talk from which that saying comes, so I thought I would read a bit of it for you this morning. Suzuki Roshi says, people say that practicing Zen is difficult, but there's a misunderstanding as to why. It's not difficult to sit in the floor in a cross-legged position. In fact, if you look around, you notice that most of our Sangha does not sit in a cross-legged position, and that some of us don't sit on the floor, and that's great, right? It's not difficult because sometimes during Sunday service, you might have to chant something in Sino-Japanese, and you have no idea what it means. You just make the sounds and trust that you're not saying something offensive. <laughs> 
it's not difficult because there's over 2,000 years of scriptures that you could look at. In Japan, he says, we have the phrase shoshin, which means beginner's mind. The goal of practice is always to keep our beginner's mind. Suppose you recite the Prajnaparamita Sutra, the Heart Sutra, only once. It might be a very good recitation. But what would happen if you recited it twice, three times, four times, or more? You might easily lose your original attitude towards it. You could actually take up this question right now. We've recited the song of the Grassroot Hermitage on Sunday for, what, the past three, four weeks? How was it the first time? How is it now? The same thing will happen in your other Zen practices. For a while, you will keep your beginner's mind. But if you continue to practice one, two, three years or more, although you may improve some, you are liable to lose the limitless meaning of original mind. The most difficult thing, Suzuki Roshi says, is always to keep your beginner's mind. There's no need to have a deep understanding of Zen. There it is. Even though you read much Zen literature, you must read each sentence with a fresh mind. You should not say, I know what Zen is or I have attained enlightenment. This is also the real secret of the arts, always be a beginner. Be very, very careful about this point. If you start to practice Zazen, you will begin to appreciate your beginner's mind. It is the secret of Zen practice. When we become familiar with something or someone, there's a strong tendency to begin thinking that we know something about that someone or something. We might start to think, oh, the next time I see them, I know how they're going to behave. Or the next time this situation comes up, I know how it's going to unfold. Or the next time I'm in conflict or a conversation with this person, I know how I'm going to respond. I'm going to show them what for. Or I'm going to be so kind and compassionate, they're going to end up incredibly frustrated. And that's going to make me feel good. Perhaps these statements of outright certainty do not agree with you. Perhaps you prefer to hedge a bit. And if so, that's fine, right? You can say, oh, I know how they're likely to respond. Or I know how this situation is likely to unfold. Or I can predict how likely it is that I will behave in such and such a way when these causes and conditions come forth and meet me. It's all the same in the end, really. The more we do this, the more our vision narrows. What we can see as live possibilities is reduced to one, two, maybe three things at best. And we start to feel really justified in holding on to those one, two, maybe three possibilities. How often, though, does a situation unfold just as you anticipated that it would? 
How often does someone act in just the way you had predicted they would? How often do you behave in just the way that you said you would? If we are honest with ourselves when asking these questions, the answer is always never. It's never what you thought it was going to be. Of the situation itself, of the other person, of yourself, we're surprised when we see things happen outside of our rigid realm of possibilities. But happen they do and without difficulty. At times it seems like they happen effortlessly. Learning and study does not result in predictive powers, I promise you. But it does result in your thinking about the realm of possibilities being a little less rigid. Once more, things become fuzzy. Your vision broadens. Beginner's mind re-emerges. That don't know mind that seems to slip away over and over and over and then keeps coming back again and again and again. All of this happening because of things we can see and some things we cannot see. At the beginning of this talk, I set up something that I called our beliefs or our belief life and I put them in opposition to our practice or practice life. I thought I would tell you that there's no meaningful opposition here. It's all the same. It's all part of the way in which we can, if we choose, orient ourselves in this world. But I wanted to talk a little less about Zazen this morning and a little more about learning and study. So thank you for allowing me this artificial duality. It helped me to see things a little bit differently, and I couldn't have done it without you. So thank you. <laughs>